Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And while I never thought I would say welcome to my 200th podcast, I also didn't expect to begin it with an announcement about a dangerous drug that's on the street today. Hopefully uh, you've already heard about this, but in case you missed it, the word is that you should avoid any 2CB fly at all costs, because it may kill you. Here are the details, uh, as I know them at least. Hoput RC, and that's H-A-U-P-U-T dash R-C. Hoput RC added 2CB fly as a uh, product to their line on Monday, September 28th, and the operator of the company died from consuming only 18 milligrams of it on Saturday, October 3rd. Between those dates, Hoput RC filled an unknown number of orders around the world. Even though 2CB fly has led to deaths before, it is not logical that a dose of 18 milligrams would have a fatal consequence. It's possible that the 2CB fly that Hoppet RC sold was tainted or mislabeled. They've been selling uh, 2CB fly as a research chemical over the net, so if you purchase this, or in my opinion any product from this vendor, uh, then whatever you do, do not consume it or let others consume it. It's uh, possible that Hoppet RC has sold 2CB fly to other vendors too, so it's advised just to stay away from that substance altogether. Uh, unconfirmed sources have stated that this 2CB fly was possibly sourced from a Chinese producer, and this Chinese producer may be selling uh, to other research chemical vendors as well. So please take this warning to heart. Uh, there are countless other ways to alter your consciousness. It won't hurt you to pass on some 2CB fly, even if it's cheap or free. I've already lost too many friends to careless drug use, and I don't want to lose any more. But uh, this should be a reminder to the entire psychedelic community to know the source of whatever it is you put in your mouth. And that's even true for food, more so, I think. You know, unless you're involved in a local farming group, you probably don't even know where your vegetables are coming from or how they're grown. Now, in a couple of minutes, we'll be hearing from seven of our elders, and my hope is that one day you will be one of our elders, too. So be careful out there. There are a lot of pitfalls, and uh, running afoul of the Empire's drug enforcement goons can uh, sometimes be the least of your worries. And now, how about we put on our party hats and happy faces and uh, get this 200th show on the road? To begin with, I would like to thank some people who have made donations to the salon in the past couple of weeks. And these fine people are Stephen B., Windsor F., and Roger B., and uh, since this is somewhat of a milestone today, let me also include my hearty thanks to all of the donors who have contributed some of their hard-earned cash over the last four and a half years. To give you an idea of where your money goes, well, it obviously goes to paying for web hosting and bandwidth fees, as well as allowing me to buy some better equipment, like the microphone I now use, uh, and gas to go interview people like Gary Fisher and Myron Stolaroff. But one way or another, I try to use the salon's donations to enhance and support these podcasts. Now, on my other little project, uh, my new novel, The Genesis Generation, I'm using those funds for my long-term dream of building a little cottage that will be close to a new conference center that may be opening in another year or so. And uh, it's there, hopefully, that I can spend my remaining years in a place where I can simply walk over and 
join you in some exciting conversations and workshops. And so far, uh, a little over 200 people have already purchased a copy, and uh, so if you do the math, you know that I've already got a good start on my down payment. So thank you one and all for all of the love and support you've given me over these past few years. I dearly appreciate it. And for the content of today's program, uh, I also want to thank Dennis Berry and Bruce Damer for the Timothy Leary portion of the talk. And also my thanks go out to uh, someone who prefers to remain anonymous, but to whom Terrence McKenna entrusted his box of the cassette tapes of his talks. And that is where some of the McKenna material comes from today. The Sasha Shulgin material, and uh, maybe a soundbite or two from Terrence, comes from fellow slaughter Alex Wall, who has a whole bunch of psychedelic talks on his website, alexwallmusic.com. And I'll uh, put a link to his site along with the program notes for this podcast. There's a world of interesting McKenna and Shulgin material there, uh, along with some other goodies that you may want to check out if you have a chance. Now, before I introduce today's speakers... I'm going to do something that I rarely do, and that is to dedicate today's program to someone. To four someones, actually. You see, when I began doing these podcasts in June of 2005, I didn't have any expectations about them at all. And uh, for sure, I never thought I'd one day be recording my 200th podcast from the salon. But here we are. And uh, believe me, it is in no small measure due to the support and encouragement of four of my fellow podcasters. In the beginning, I hadn't been paying much attention to whether many people were downloading the episodes or not. In fact, uh, I think that after my first four programs, when I discovered that there hadn't been more than a hundred or so total downloads, that I decided that if I was going to keep on doing this, then I'd better just do it for the fun of it and not pay any attention to whether or not anyone was listening. Then, uh, I guess it was about a year later, that I got a call from KMO, who I'm sure you already know as the host of the Sea Realm podcast, which, in my humble opinion, is the best interview show around, on podcasts or in the corporate media. And it was KMO who first let me know that there were actually a lot of listeners out there. That's when I checked my logs again and uh, discovered that the numbers were really getting big. And about that time is when my hosting company also let me know that uh, I'd soon need my own server. But it was KMO who opened up the world of podcasting to me because... uh, Until he called, I'd only been producing them and uh, hadn't had the time to search out some that I might be interested in myself. And so it was also KMO who introduced me to the Dope Fiend and his wonderful cannabis podcast network at dopefiend.co.uk. I've already said a lot about my high regard for the quality of information and uh, just plain old fun that the Dope Fiend's podcast brings each and every Monday, just like clockwork. In fact, uh, even in retirement, Mondays are a drag for me. And now I don't know how I would get through them without a new dope cast. But here is another thing you should know about the dope fiend. He's also a very generous man. When I lost my own MP3 player and mentioned it on a podcast, well, about a week later, a package comes to me from the UK, and in it is a brand new MP3 player, a gift from the dope fiend. And in fact, uh, in the past, I even recorded a couple of podcasts on it, uh, as well as some of my interviews with Myron Stoloroff and Gary Fisher. Now, the Dope Fiends Network carries uh, quite a few podcasts, uh, all of which I'm a big fan of. In fact, uh, hey, welcome back, Lefty. Uh, 
Lefty's Lounge is back on the podcast airways again, and uh, I just listened to number 63 this morning, and sounds like uh, you and I are sharing some headspace, Lefty, so uh, hey, welcome back. However, uh, in addition to all of the other podcasts and the Dope Fiends podcast, there are two of them on that network that I really want to mention in particular. One is uh, BB's Bungalow, and it's uh, Black Beauty, the bungalow's host, who's silken Australian accented voice you hear after each of the talks I play here in the salon. And if I'm not mistaken, today is actually Black Beauty's birthday, so happy birthday, BB, and uh, tell your parents thanks a lot for bringing you into this world. And it's also uh, Black Beauty who introduced each of the chapters in my audiobook, The Genesis Generation. She has uh, taken her time to help me whenever I've asked, and more importantly, her podcast has extended my emotional family ties to a part of the tribe that seems to be having more fun than anyone else on the planet. I think I've listened to all of her shows at least three times now, and if I'm not careful, I'm going to begin to pick up an Aussie accent myself. And then there's the one and only Queer Ninja. I could go on for hours about how much help he has been to me in my dark hours. Like you, uh, I have my difficult moments every once in a while. But as strange as it would seem from the outside for a 68-year-old straight white guy from California and a much younger queer ninja from Scotland to be close friends, it doesn't seem that way to us at all. Although we've never met in person, we have come to share a deep bond that transcends all cultural conventions. Ours is a human-to-human connection free of any external baggage. And my desire is that uh, before long all humans on this planet can... uh, do the same and put aside our differences so we can revel in our common experience of life as human beings. And so, this 200th podcast from the Psychedelic Salon is dedicated to the four saints of podcasting, KMO, The Dope Fiend, Black Beauty, and Queer Ninja. And to honor the four of you today, I'm going to play a few words from some of my favorite elders, because, at least to me, the four of you are my elders as well. As they say, age alone does not an elder make. But the elders we are going to hear from right now, in order of appearance, are Gary Fisher, Sasha Shulgin, Ann Shulgin, Myron Stolaroff, Terence McKenna, Baba Ramdas, and Timothy Leary. And I'll finish off by returning to the Bard McKenna for a few closing words. Oh, and I guess I should uh, say that the only reason that uh, Robert Anton Wilson, Alan Watts, and a dozen other psychedelic luminaries aren't included is uh, purely due to time constraints uh, and, uh, I guess, my own lethargy. Now, one final word of explanation before we begin, and uh, that is about the first soundbite we're about to hear. I'm beginning this little survey of some of the elders with a clip from a podcast I did with Gary Fisher a couple of years ago, in which he spoke of the legendary Al Hubbard. As you know, Al Hubbard has uh, been called the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, and he was more instrumental than anyone in bringing acid to North America. He took Huxley, Osman, Blewett, Chewilis, Fisher, and Stolaroff, among others, on their first acid trips. And as you'll hear, he is also the person who perhaps did as much as anyone in turning psychedelic research away from its initial focus of trying to mimic mental disease and to focus instead on better ways to use these critically important medicines to heal people. Also, it was Al Hubbard who became Myron Stolaroff's mentor, eventually leading Myron to walk away from a potential fortune as one of the founding employees of Ampex 
in order to spend the rest of his life doing psychedelic research, foregoing a conventional career. And I guess as a little side note for uh, any of our fellow saloners who are history buffs, I should pass along a little fact that may otherwise go unnoticed. And that is that the executor of Al Hubbard's estate told me one night when we were both visiting the Stolaroffs that after Al died, his ashes were scattered right where we were at the time, on Myron's property in the high desert, a place that also held a lot of significance for him and Myron together. So now we'll begin in the middle of a conversation that I had with Gary Fisher a couple of years ago when he was uh, saying a few words about Al Hubbard. And if you want to hear this entire conversation, it's in my podcast number 97 and 98. Yeah, Hubbard, uh, Hubbard is not recognized uh, in the, in the um, literature. He never wrote anything, of course. And, uh, you, know, you know, he was a charlatan as well. I mean, he was a very, he was a, um, uh, he built airplanes. Yeah. yeah, I knew he had airplanes. He had this alleged OSS CIA connection. Oh, yes. oh, he yeah. had a boat that ran yeah. without gasoline. Oh, yeah, right. And, yeah. and Myron told me one time that, uh, you know, that Hubbard, um, he lent Hubbard money. And then Hubbard came back and wanted more money. And she said, well, you haven't paid me back what I've got. And so he talked Myron into giving him money. And he said, what? He said, oh, Myron's so sweet. He says, what's wrong with me? And I said, well, you're stupid and Hubbard's smart. <laughs> <laughs> what else? He, he laughed and laughed and <laughs> But, uh, you know, Myron is so uh, seducible. Oh, he's such a gentle yeah, person. Uh, he's he's a, almost an innocent. <laughs> yes, he is. He is. And uh, so uh, Hubbard was just the opposite. But this paper of Myron's I, I brought up this morning, uh, it starts out with a, a, a meeting Oscar Janiger had in February of 79, mm. which is like 20 years after uh, LSD mm-hmm. being research. And uh, he describes Hubbard's presence there. He said Hubbard was there in... Uh, uh, a marshal's uniform complete with badge, gun, and ammunition belt. <laughs> so, he must have been something else. Yeah, because Hubbard, was, you know, all of our model was from Hubbard because Hubbard was the guy who taught my brother-in-law and um, Duncan Blewett. And and that would explain why uh, St. Veronica's Veil, that painting, right. is used uh, right. throughout your... And a single red rose, the Rose of Sharon. We oh, always We used a single red rose all the time. And always had that picture there. And, and then I always had a picture of the Buddha, too, because a guy painted one for me mm. after a session that he had. Gorgeous. It's up with my daughter now in uh, Washington. But... Um, well, you know, Hubbard, although he didn't didn't write anything, um, didn't record anything, he's, mm-hmm. he's very difficult to find any documentation on it. Right. He had a really profound influence. Profound, profound. He was the father of all of this stuff. He was the one, you know, the Saskatchewan group that was on, on schizophrenia was uh, mimicking uh, psychosis. Uh, that's what LSD did it mimicked psychosis so they thought well if they made people psychotic they could figure out 
you know, how to cure psychosis. And Hubbard said to them, uh, it's easy to make people crazy, but you want to make them sane. And this is how you do it if you want to make them sane. So uh, he was the one who introduced Hoffman and Osmond and Hoffer to this whole approach. Mm-hmm. My interest in the area, actually, this is, this is a, a, a nice opportunity. I spent a couple of years of my life upriver, uh, some oh, 60 or so years ago, more than that, at Harvard, where I uh, had the unfortunate pleasure of having a national scholarship, which got me in there free. And uh, I found that everyone else had parents who had enough money to get them in there, having paid their way. And I could find very little rapport with the masses of freshmen that were around me. So I found it much more pleasurable to go in the Navy and spend three years in the Atlantic, in the anti-submarine patrol which actually gave me a very nice beginning on chemistry in that one of the um, books I had with me was a book by Paul Carrer, a Swiss chemist, written about 1938 or 1940. And it was a complete over, over, uh, statement, complete statement of the uh, subtleties and the complexities of organic chemistry. And when you're spending three years uh, in the Atlantic waiting for submarines, you have a lot of time spare. And I not only read the book, but substantially understood it. And uh, it was a very, very great pleasure to get out of the Navy and back into the university at Berkeley, where I took organic chemistry as my major. And uh, the greatest compliment I had was from a, a fellow by the name of Kason, uh, who was a lecturer there, at, uh, or professor at chemistry. And uh, he said, by the way, he met him in the hall during, the, I guess, the second year of organic chemistry. Um, we're having a, a midterm this coming Tuesday, and you can take it if you want to which I thought was quite a compliment because I was uh, the average on the first midterm was something like 62 points out of 100, and I had 100%. And he didn't know exactly why. I mean, I, I, could, I could answer the questions without any problem because they were all in Paul Carr's book, and I had memorized the book. Ah, that's, I think, honest. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, uh, after that, I got into um, my uh, AB in chemistry at Berkeley, a PhD in biochemistry at Berkeley, got involved in a little laboratory, there are five of us, called BioRad Laboratory, that's now a multi-million dollar operation. Had I stayed with them, I would have been a very, very rich millionaire with ulcers at this point. And I'm very glad I just, I split the scene when there's still only five of us present. Did a little radioactive synthesis in their, in their name. Uh, did some postdoctorate work at Berkeley. Uh, went to Dow Chemical Company, the Dow Chemical Company out with a branch of it there in Pittsburgh, in, near Near the, near the Bay Area in, in California. And um, it's there that I really got initiated into what turned out to be a very important change in my life. I had my first experience with uh, mescaline. About 1960, that's a, 1950, 1960, about 45 years ago. Uh, 400 milligrams of the, of the sulfate and had a good babysitter. And I'd explored a great deal around various psychoactive drugs. This was supposed to be an erotic thing. That is supposed to be an amnesia thing. Each of these had their own little name. I had heard about mescaline, had never tried it. And that one day, that eight or ten hour experience, really changed uh, my life for the next uh, half century. I was totally fascinated with a drug that could get in there, allow you to see things you would not normally see, and yet you knew to be valid. I have a reasonably limited uh, knowledge of colors, 
suddenly I saw colors that I had never really appreciated before. I could look at a flower and observe the beauty of a flower, could not open the flower, could not touch it, but I observed the beauty of a flower. I had memories from childhood that I knew were valid, but I had not thought of them for years. It was a very, very delightful uh, experience, but mainly what uh, uh, impressed me most thoroughly is that uh, that experience was clearly not due, the contents of that experience were not in that 400 milligrams of the drug. The drug, what it did, it catalyzed my mind. It got my mind back into that particular area. So I looked upon these materials as being catalytic, not productive. They do not do what occurs. They allow you to express what is in you that you had not had the ability to get to and express uh, yourself without without the help of a, of a material. So this really caught my fancy, and I said, if, if this little 400 milligrams of something could be a, a, an effective catalyst to, relieve, to re reveal back to me what I had done, what I had seen, and uh, such, there is a great potential here for uh, for medical use. And that caught me with my little knowledge of chemistry and my intense curiosity as what was going on upstairs in my head as it was revealed by this masculine experience. I really went into uh, a, a true new direction of chemistry. We're talking a lot today already about experiments with, with mice and with rats and with um, various animals. In my own case, I, the only animal I used was, was the human animal. I presume this is now a little awkward because of the various uh, national and federal regulations that have come in. But uh, I find that still the human, human animal is the only one that is really effective in evaluating and comparing these various psychedelic materials. And, I, and, and the work I do is still involved in that direction. But the real charming thing, and the really, uh, uh, to me, exciting thing, was the fact each thing you came up with uh, was a new material. It had never been made before. So you're looking at a, at a white crystalline solid in a, in a little beaker there. Uh, and you've never seen it before. No one in the world has seen this before. As far as you know, no one in the universe has seen this before. It's a new, new thing you've just made. And it's never seen you before, so you in essence have no, no, no dialogue at all. How much do you start with? How much material do you use as a first experiment on a new chemical that's never been tried before by anyone? Well, obviously an amount that's small enough that will not have any effect. But how small an amount is that? There's a very interesting additional nuance in this, in this relationship that I developed over a period of time. That You go with great caution, decide what is an amount that would have no effect, and take one thousandth of that amount. It doesn't take much, it takes time. But it doesn't take much more chemicals, because you use a thousand up to where you were, you'd use another milligram, perhaps. And so each of these materials had to be uh, learned as an individual new meeting. And one of the, the outgrowths that I discovered is that the beauty of your final results of finding out what the, what the effects are, uh, you really can't be wrong. Because you'll say, I found that this material caused a visual enhancement of that and a recall of memories of this and this and yonder. Anyone else who tries it who finds the same results will say he is right. Anyone who tries it and doesn't get the results is, what did I do wrong? So in essence, you come up with, with a winner uh, very nicely. So the, the thought occurred to me, if you have an alkyl group, that, that's D-O-B and D-O-I. Uh, D-O-M was the one that got off into San Francisco under the name of STP. I don't know if any, if any of you are young enough to know San Francisco in the 60s, but there was a, a, a D, uh, STP, a DNP, STP, I should say, was very active at that time, and it was turned out that I 
found out that it was indeed DOM under another name, STP. Uh, they, they said uh, serenity, tranquility, and placidity was the name for it, and no one knew what placidity was, so it became uh, serenity, tranquility, and peace, which was a little bit more understood, uh, to the police authorities who did not like this idea of this going around. They didn't know what it was. They called it too stupid to puke, which was their counterpart to the, this is the days of the Haight-Ashbury uh, Clinic. And it was, at this time, I was up on the hill in the medical school. And this was going out there and had no idea what STP was. One of my compounds, I had talked to the media at a conference back in the East Coast, here in the East Coast, about a week or two earlier, and I had talked about the material and gave it structure. And I suspect it was just synthesized from this seminar I gave. Anyway, the uh, bromo, the... <laughs> funny world. Uh, the bromo compound, iodo compound, it occurred to me, maybe it is because this alkyl group was active and you have what's called a, a lipophilicity or, or hydrophobicness, where something likes something that's fatty. And maybe if I put something on there that was water-loving, like a nitro group, it would not be active when it goes into the, into the neurotransmitter uh, receptor site. I put a nitro group active. Well, maybe it likes both. It was putting its tail into this receptor site, going to the right that's lipophilic and to the left that's hydrophilic. What if I'm putting a group on that is not philic at all, namely fluorine? So I put on, a, I think it was a trifluoroethyloxy analog, so I felt this would probably not be active at all, also active. So just getting it, the tail of the four-position that molecule into the receptor site produced activity. So from that, the obvious steps were to go and make, take off the methyl group, get away from the amphetamine chain. So I took the methyl group off, and that gave uh, 2CB, then 2CI, a host of other materials in the same ilk that was just a, a, a beautifully rich um, collection of, of compounds, many of them uh, uh, not as potent as the amphetamines, but shorter-lived and much more benign and much more uh, friendly than the corresponding amphetamines. So this is what, then I'll, oh, another thing I, I, somewhere along the line occurred to me, if oxygen does a good job, put a sulfur on there, and you get them now the 2CT family, 2CT2 up to about 2CT25 or so, of which about half of them are active. So this is, the, this is kind of the hand-waving world of synthetic chemistry. I could go on for another 10, 15 minutes and get into tryptamines to go through the same complexities, but you have this as the active position. That is not as active. This is less active. Alkyl groups on tryptamines are much enhancing in, in nature and complexity of action. Alkyl groups, with the exception of MDMA and a couple of others, on the phenethylamines destroys the activity of the phenethylamines. So there are differences between these two families of compounds, but those differences are not... Um, Negative, they are just informative. Anyway, that's kind of the picture of where I've been going for a while. I don't want to take too long here. Um, what uh, is, uh, I think, a question has often come up is, how is this all going to work out? What are the, the goods and the bads of this entire area of psychedelic chemistry? Basically, the negatives are the terms uh, of many people, from law writers to to uh, people in the street feel that this is an area of neurotoxicity, uh, an area these materials cause neurological damage, cause people to lose control, commit crimes, and eventually collapse at, after 20 years of, of, of uh, brain de decomposition, which is, to a large measure, nonsense. However, I can't say completely excluded. I've been into it for 45 years, and I'm having my usual expected amount of brain deterioration. But I don't think it's that serious yet, so I hope to have another decade or two of, 
of reasonable responses. And you have the, the increasing urge to put laws against these, these things because the psychology, the propaganda that they are negative, that they do damage, is very real and very much believed by many people. I've been often asked why use the word psychedelic itself as a pejorative term. I mean, there are empathogens, entheogens, hallucinogens, psychotomimetics, other terms that are used widely in medicine uh, that carry other messages but do not carry the intrinsic negativeness of the term psychedelic. Well, I, my main argument for keep, continuing to use the term is that you, people may not approve of what you're working in or what you're saying, but at least they know what you're talking about. I mean, you stop nine people on Market Street, uh, uh, ten people, nine people, you say, I work with empathogens, when they ask you what you do, they have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, nine people out of ten, when you tell that you're working with psychedelics, would not, maybe not approve, but at least they know what you're working with. So the idea of using a term that is uh, in popular usage, I consider to be quite positive. What are the positives? I consider the positives to be the, my main incentive for doing the work I've done for the last half century and continuing to do it now, is I believe in this collection of materials, you're going to develop tools that are going to answer many of the questions that have been brought up today. Namely, how can you find out how the brain works you can use a rat? How does the mind work? What is the, how, what kind of a probe can you make to look at the function of the mind? To me, it's going to be a psychedelic material that has very little action in, in, in experimental animals to look into actions in man that are not seen in experimental animals. Maybe the idea of using these materials as eventual research tools I consider to be extremely, extremely valuable. And this was some years ago, back, back in the good old days before there were many inhibitive, inhibitory actions on human studies uh, FDA approval, disapproval, get clearance from the DEA clearance, from everything like that before you do any human experiments. Your board of your university has to see the research and approve of it. A lot of this experimental work was done back in the, in the Halcyon days when there were no such things as research approval boards. I mean, it, it, in Berkeley, we had the, the run of the place. We, you know, could fire up a psychotron and make an isotope and use it. And try it in, in they, they, their argument at, at Donner Labs, that was a Donner, then went up to the, up on the hill in Lawrence Lab, was stay if you want and do whatever you want. The tools are here. Here's a cyclotron. Here's your PET scanner. Um, do whatever you want, but just remember when you leave, turn off the lights and lock the door. And we, we could work through the night there, doing experiments, all kinds of beautiful things. I remember one time, this is kind of, so let me use this as sort of a wind up. Uh, we had the, uh, this was some, maybe three or four decades ago, is quite popular opinion that, that uh, methionine was involved in schizophrenia because some experiments had been done in which people who were schizophrenic were given methionine-rich diets and their symptoms became worse, and yet those people who were not diagnosed as schizophrenics with the methionine-rich diet uh, had no changes at all. So we talked about this pros and cons, and it was a neat experiment. What I did, I... I took a, I remember it was S-adenosine with thionine or some compound in that area, and I tucked on a fluorine 18, which makes it a, 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 a positron emitter, which means you can go into a PET scanner and put this into a person and put the head of the person, had the person attached to the head, sorry. No, that didn't sound good. You have the person lie down on a little cot with the head going into a positron camera, and you've had a section of the brain just above the earlobes that tells you where that chemical went. Being a positron emitter, 
it didn't have to have any reaction in the body. It just went where it went. And what we did, this was work done with Tony some, oh, God, years, a few decades ago. Uh, I made this material. In fact, I made ten batches over a period of time. The half-life of fluorine is a little less than two hours, so you can't make a lot of it and keep it for a while. And he had good friends up at uh, Mendocino Laboratory, uh, Mendocino Hospital, and he came back with five names of five schizophrenic patients who were up at the hospital. And we had their names and the backgrounds of them. And uh, in Lawrence lab, I managed to find five normal controls. That was a bit more tricky, but <laughs> we did. And uh, we did 10 batches of this, and we did 10 experiments. We put the material into the, these 10 people about a week apart, and in each case, put them into the, uh, to the uh, PET scanner. I remember one, one of the uh, schizophrenics, Tony, had a lot of problems with because he did not like radioactivity. And he said radioactivity is bad. So we had down at Donner a great big uh, sort of a background counter. It's a, a, a big room with a big iodine crystal of 30-some inches in diameter and uh, walls that three inches thick lead overhead and side. And Tony very nicely told him, if you go in here and spend a half an hour, he'll give you a magazine, turn the leave the light on. If you go in here and spend a half an hour in here, your body will be so depleted of radiation that when we take you up in the hill and put you in a positive camera, we bring you back to normal. You'll be okay. He believed it. <laughs> anyway, the, the, uh, a wrap-up with, with the result of the experiment. It was a fascinating thing. We ran ten studies. And we had ten photographs of the, of the uh, uh, fluorine-18 disposition in the brain. And the ten photographs were absolutely different from one another. There was no consistency through this group at all. And so we put them on the wall of the, of the uh, uh, medical radiation thing up in the hill. And across the back of the wall, every time someone would come in from Washington to give a seminar or come in from somewhere of any importance, we say, by the way, here are ten photographs of the fluorine-18 labeled material we gave. Five of these are schizophrenic patients, and five of them are normals. Which do you think are normals? Which do you think are schizophrenics? And we got absolutely random answers. No, 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 no pattern could be found at all. Then about uh, two months, three months later, one of the schizophrenic patients who liked Tony very much uh, came down to visit and see how everything was going on. Very nice visit. And uh, they were talking for a while. And he saw these, these ten photographs on the wall. And uh, he said, are those the ten pictures you took of us? Tony said, yeah. And he looked at one and said, oh, I know, I reckon that's me. And he pointed to number seven or one of them over there. And he's absolutely right. He identified his own photograph from the PET scan of the distribution of that fluorine 18 thing. And Tony very mildly, casually said, oh, you know, you're right, absolutely right. How do you know? Oh, he said that, you see that little sort of star-shaped, uh, shiny thing in the bottom right corner? That little star-shaped thing? Yeah, he said, I see it all the time. So, you know, we have a long way to go <laughs> before we really can understand uh, how the mind works. But this is a start. Thank you very much. Uh, my, my interest in these, these compounds um, is that they, they let you open up uh, the doors inside your own psyche. Uh, they allow things to 
to be um, more obvious, more apparent uh, than the conscious mind usually lets them be. I mean, the function of the conscious mind, I suppose, is, is to uh, allow us to function during the day and to uh, get food and maintain uh, our jobs and take care of our kids. But what goes on in the unconscious usually is available only during dreams. And uh, dreams can tell you a tremendous lot if you think of them as uh, sort of status quo reports, uh, with uh, some exceptions. I mean, there is lucid dreaming and there are uh, what Jung called big dreams, and these are exceptions to the rule. But the psychedelics, uh, the visionary plants, allow you to do uh, deeper looking and um, a different kind of learning because what comes uh, to you is uh, a different sort of knowledge, as I'm sure you're all pretty much aware. And uh, so I, I feel that not all psychedelics can be used in psychotherapy, but a lot of them can. And, uh, of course, the, the greatest uh, introductory um, medicine for, for self-searching and for insight, uh, as I think we all are aware, was, uh, was MDMA. Uh, it was, MDMA is not a psychedelic in any real way, uh, but it's a great opener. Uh, especially for people who, who really can't tolerate the, the harder-hitting um, LSD or uh, materials like that. Anyway, that's my basic interest is to try and find out um, what I'm made of and therefore what everybody else is made of, what, what humans are about. Um, the best, most exciting and fascinating work I ever did. I, I did only three years of uh, a sort of new kind of psychotherapy uh, with mostly MDMA and also 2CB and a, a few other materials. And but also the hypnosis was a part of your yeah, therapy. Yeah, uh, hypnosis is a very, very, very good tool. Um, I, I think that the most rewarding work I did was in dealing with uh, the shadow. I'm sure that most of you have some idea of what the shadow is. It's the dark side. We call it the dark side. Uh, actually, there's nothing dark about it except that it's the part of us that we have been taught to repress, uh, the non-acceptable parts of ourselves. And this is often confused with a part of, our, uh, of us which I call the survivor, uh, which is, is there, you know, just to take care of, of us. Um, it's the, the, the part of us that is concerned only with us and with our own safety and uh, um, things going well for us. Um, this, but the, the, the shadow work is perhaps the most important use of these materials as far as I'm concerned, that there is. Because it's in opening up the shadow and discovering that it's not a monster, 
that it's it's not a a terrible horrible beast that it is a uh, it's the uncultivated, unsophisticated, and um, slightly sometimes unlawful part of ourselves, uh, which can be one of our greatest allies as long as we can find the courage to do the work necessary uh, to discover it and to become one with it and to negotiate with it. Uh, anyway, that's... that's uh, my biggest interest uh, in psychedelics. I consider them basically spiritual tools. Uh, 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 input from Myron, please. Uh, yeah. Um, I'd like to say a few words about uh, the title of the subject that was uh, printed in, in the paper that uh, oh, announced this. That the <laughs> oh. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> uh, how can you get the most out of psychedelics? And uh, I'm here to tell you that I've gotten an awful lot out of psychedelics, a tremendous amount. But, you know, there, there's kind of a dilemma here because you're all out there, and uh, I don't know, I know very few of you, and I don't know what your experience is or how far you've gone, uh, just uh, where you would be. And for all I know, you all know more about this than I do. Uh, but what I will do, I'll just spend a few minutes to focused on uh, some of the things I think you need to be careful about. And uh, first, uh, let's sort of imagine that you're starting as a novice. Uh, I think it's extremely important to have a very knowledgeable person to be present uh, because it depends, of course, on the chemical you're using. But if you're using something like LSD, which and, and let, let us not forget that it's illegal now, and I'm not encouraging anybody to break the law, but it is the law. But there are places you can go outside of the country and so forth where you might be able to have an LSD experience. And LSD is a fantastic opener. But, uh, you know, some, if you take very, uh, a, a large dose, uh, you, you may not know what's going to be open and what direction you're really going in. And uh, uh, some, you might open up this dark side that Ann was talking about, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a very important issue because I think we all do have this shadow, and uh, uh, the shadow is unconscious, and since it is unconscious, it controls our actions and our feelings without our knowing it. And uh, the only way you can get free of that is to reach down deep enough into the shadow and actually experience the event or whatever it is that's happened that's caused the difficulty. Because once you do that, then you're free. You can make a choice. I can either forget this uh, I can get rid of it. But as long as you don't really experience it, uh, it's unconscious and will continue to control you until you do find a way to get down there and clear it up. Uh, but getting back to what I was saying, um, <coughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's very helpful to have someone... Um, and I've learned more about this. I have to say that when I first got into this, I was really, really uptight and repressed in a lot of ways. And I never, <laughs> I never really could feel other people. And, gee, just, just uh, in the last couple of years or so, uh, and, well, I'll add something to that in a minute. 
But in the last couple of years or so uh, now, I, I get where I can feel people's energy. And then I begin to find out <laughs> if you're having a hard time, if there's a person sitting with you and they're a good person and a knowledgeable person, that's an enormous support and it makes it a lot easier to work through these things. But also it's easier to get into this dark material because uh, at the same time these chemicals are opening to your deep inner self. And if you ever reach your deep inner self, that's pure euphoria. That's pure beauty and wonder. In fact, if you really get in there, it's beauty and wonder beyond any way of describing. So that is there, and, and so that's your friend waiting to help you if you begin to clear the junk out of the way so that you can reach deeper and deeper in and begin to contact that material. Well, somebody once asked me, you know, is it dangerous? And the answer is only if you fear death by astonishment. Do not give way to astonishment. Do not abandon yourself to wonder. Get a grip. Try to get a grip and notice what we're doing. Pay attention. This is the mantra. Pay attention. Pay attention. On DMT, these entities, these machine-like, diminutive, shape-shifting, faceted, machine-elf-type creatures that come bounding out of the state, they come bounding out of my stereo speakers if I have my eyes open, they are like... uh, you know, they're elfin embodiments of syntactical intent. Somehow syntax, which is normally the invisible architecture behind language, has moved into the foreground. And you can see it. I mean, it's doing calisthenics and acrobatics in front of you. It's crawling all over you. And and what's happened is that your categories have been scrambled or something, and this thing which is normally supposed to be invisible and in the background and, and an abstraction has come forward and is doing handsprings right in front of you. And the thing makes linguistic objects. It sheds syntactical objectification so that it comes toward you They come toward you, they divide, they merge, they're bounding, they're screaming, they're squeaking, and they hold out objects which they sing into existence or which they pull out of some other place. And these things are, are, uh, you know, like jewels and lights, but also like consomme and old farts and yesterday and high speed. In other words, they are made of... They are made of juxtapositions of qualities that are impossible in three-dimensional space. What they're like is, and in fact this is probably what they are, what they're like is they're like uh, three and four and five-dimensional puns. And you know how the pleasure of a pun lies in the fact that it is, it's not that the meaning flickers, 
from A to B, it's that it's simultaneously A and B. And when the pun is really funny, it's an A, B, C, D pun. And it's simultaneously all these things. Well, that quality, which in our experience can only occur to an acoustical output or a glyph, which stands for an acoustical output, in other words, a printed pun, in the DMT world, objects can do this. Objects can simultaneously manifest more than one nature at once. And for some, and like a pun, the result is always funny. It's amusing. You cannot help but be delighted by this thing doing this thing. There was a question earlier about where do we go from here. And um, my feeling is that we see through scenarios and myths so much that all we can do from here is be true to ourselves from moment to moment. Because every time we say, well, where we go from here is up, we are already sending a whole structural thing forward. Well, I'm very willing to do that. Yeah, I understand, as long as you don't get trapped in them. Yeah. Uh, and um, at 10.30, 11, and 12 on a Sunday morning, it, um, probably not the best time to be strobing and strafing you with hundreds of new ideas, which I'd be very like to do uh, under different circumstances. Uh, I have a, uh, a meter, it's called RPM, revelations per minute. Uh, and, uh, uh, I have many thoughts about where to go in the future, which have to do with uh, new breakthroughs in uh, nuclear 15 physics. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen hmm? minutes. Go ahead. Well, no, just for one minute. Uh, the new breakthroughs in uh, in uh, nuclear physics, the new breakthroughs in uh, Prigogine's understanding of um, of how evolution works. We've repealed the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, the uh, first. Uh, Sheldrake's new theories of uh, morphogenic resonance. Um, everywhere you look in science, there are n new breakthroughs that are leading us to, pulling us, escalating us to a new level of, um, of uh, understanding, which change our opinions of human nature. Uh, the genetics, where we can now, uh, through recombinant um, uh, techniques, uh, literally uh, take over wisely and virtuously the role of... Um, um, re creating and recreating life, uh, the new brain research, the um, uh, the personal computers of Job and Wozniak, which are, I think, as important as the introduction, certainly of the printing press, uh, the new uh, brain chemistry, the new concepts of sociobiology, the new understanding of um, uh, social demographics, uh, neurogeography that tells us where you are determines who you are, habitat determines species. Uh, I could go on listing dozens and dozens of breakthroughs and experiments in science, the new astronomy, uh, all of which seem to center on this one issue that our species has come to a position where uh, we can intelligently and virtuously determine what's happening with our own brain, with our own DNA code. Uh, we can move our bodies, move our uh, equipment, move our brain. We are literally at a position where uh, collectively working in harmony, we can do most of the things that, um, uh, and take the responsibilities, which in the past have been attributed to the great deities of the past. I think the golden age is ahead. It's the golden age of humanist science, humanist technology, pagan science, 
pagan technology, high tech, high touch. Uh, there's an, in, in every field. There's. Um, uh, uh, I think that you you could float through all those impressive list of places in which there were breakthroughs, one after another, and flip planes that fast. You know, because you rest nowhere. And so, if from that place, it all is this incredibly creative act, and you can do anything, and you can play any way you want to. But the place we share is the place that stands nowhere. Not the place that's caught in the spirals that involve intellectual advance, or now we know it, so on. That's all like little ripples on the ocean. Or another way to put it, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we're moving from one star system or one galaxy or one spatial resting place to another. It's the old particle wave theory. Uh, we jump the void. And when we're in that void, we're together. Yeah. And we la may land on different planets, yeah, different uh, uh, lobes of the brain. Uh, there's no getting away from the fact that it's all on, off, on, off, uh, void structure, void structure, form structure. Uh, atomic physics tells us that. Uh, right the brain works that way. Uh, so that... Um, Am I more interested in the many landing places and you more in the void? I don't think so. No. I don't think so. I think we're just sharing a, an ecstatic delight in the uniquenesses of the way the form manifests. I mean, I'm really an appreciator of the way you are manifesting this lifetime, and you of me. And in a way, it's because we rest in the place behind that. If we're busy being you and me, it gets a little... it's exciting. And I don't want to be not you and me, but I don't want to be only you and me. That's all. I think we've escaped that trap. I think we, we do most of the time. I wouldn't, I, I know nothing about the future. On the other hand, there are very fascinating differences between us. And to say this is not to uh, make invidious, that's the glory and the wonder of it. And uh, we mustn't just go away feeling that it's all wonderful and mellow here on Sunday. Yes, it is mellow, can. but yeah. there are also uh, a, a long list of uh, exciting uh, contextual differences that are kind of fun to bring up. And, uh, Why don't you list them? Well, I listed some of them. Then. <laughs> <laughs> you got well, I'll tell you, list. for example. Give me a whole list. I'll tell you, for example. When Richard uses words like God... <laughs> or spiritual <laughs> and occasionally you call upon the name of Christ and wow that's the great way is not that's difficult far out the great way the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences when love and hate are both absent everything becomes clear and undisguised but make the slightest distinction, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. They have the form and the formless. Yeah. But yet the words do have semantic meaning. And as I said, you, the, the fact that you are reacting to those is your problem. It's your attachment. I use God the way I use it. Why should that upset you? It's none of your business what words I use to talk about what model. They're just scenarios. It's like Walter Cronkite saying, that's the way it is tonight. That's just the way Walter Cronkite thinks it is tonight. But I also think of the semantic meaning uh, to uh, other people. 
Yeah, what, what the word God would mean or the word Christ yeah. would mean. Uh, I think it means uh, a mystery, a doorway to an unknown, yeah. a, an unnameless Yahweh, uh, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. The 99 names, none of which say what it is. And don't you want to keep everybody right at the edge of the form and the formless? Because that's where the ultimate act of creation is. For some people, God is a total drag, and for other people, it's a doorway. And I just send out as many doorways as I can, because all the doorways lead to the same place, as far as I'm concerned. Somebody's used every one of them. I, I think that it's uh, our duty as explorers and as um, frontier scouts for our species uh, to invent new terminologies. We don't say, well, uh, I, uh, I went out in the spaceship and I climbed the mountain and I went over the hill and uh, I found this incredibly new terrain and I'm going to call it uh, God, you know. Uh, let's call it, uh, you know, um, <laughs> New Jersey. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I really feel that words are tremendously important. And when I, I give college lectures to young people, I say, you've got to develop. We've got to develop a new terminology. We simply can't use the language that has been around for three or four thousand years because more people have been killed in the name of God than uh, any other word around. Um, and, uh, uh, and uh, how many have been going about to be killed by science? <laughs> well, I never use the word science uh, unless I use the adjective pagan science or humanist science. Or, like a symphony orchestra out here of images. Did you, did you finish that? I didn't hear that one. Question over here. Yes. Um, I was wondering, it's addressed to both of you, uh, would you care to make any specific predictions? There seems to be a, a regrouping that took place in the late 70s, and there are many similarities, to me at least, between, let's say, 1963 and 1983. Would you care to make any predictions on the remainder of the 80s? Which groupings do you have in mind? Anyone. Uh, I'm very uninterested in the way in which shared awareness manifests, whether it gets groupy or not. I mean, I really, what I experience is what I just call a Martian takeover of um, a shared awareness that when you meet somebody, you can look them in the eye for a second and you know, they know, you know, they know, and there we are. And I don't need that I have to wear badges or join clubs for that. So I'm not sure whether mass movement in the, in the sense that the, I don't think numbers is necessarily the only, that's power, is the only, worldly power is the only way social change comes about. I mean, I really feel it's much more interesting than that, much more so. so yeah, I, I, he's talking about the 80s. Do, do you vote? 
Yes, you do. Uh, I, I would love to vote. Uh, hmm? I would love to vote. You can't. You're an ex-criminal, aren't you? Or something? No, I think I can vote. Yeah, well, why don't you? Matter of fact, uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, have a, I haven't been excited about the choices. No, I haven't either. Uh, and I, I felt either. that not voting... I don't think the political arena is where social change occurs. Yeah. Uh, it follows. It always comes later. Mm-hmm. They're just reactive. they got pollsters in the White House. I mean, there's the sole man in the Oval Office reading his polls to decide how to think. Which is great from our point of view. We do have an actor. We have just what we wanted. All we have to do is... All we have to do is accept the responsibility for the programming. And that happens out of the individual human hearts that don't feel good. And they say to him, hey, baby, you're not playing my, you know, you're not my lead anymore. And it moves. I think, I think Ronnie lives, listens to Nancy. And Nancy listens to Ronnie. And sometimes through them, they listen to some human heart that beats in there. Yes. And that's the channel through, as far as I'm concerned. I, I generally, um, in, in lectures, uh, I think I'm much more um, uh, assertive and aggressive. I make fun of Reagan, and I, I, I don't, uh, um, you know, make love to Casper uh, Weinberger. I, uh, I feel that it's my function, rightly or wrongly, to, uh, as an Irish storyteller, uh, yeah. to, uh, to play that role of making fun. A storyteller lives in the world of good and evil. Yeah, of good and evil. Yeah. yeah. But you and I both can play in the world yeah. of good and evil yeah. without getting caught in righteousness. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, so I tend to be... Uh, Probably much more abrasive than you, and I yeah. stir but up I more. But I see that as just a different form. I don't see it's better or yeah. worse. But uh, I, uh, I stir I, up I too. I connect people who have seen each other as as opponents, and say, "I'm going to say no to you, Casper. I'm going to stop you if I possibly can, but I'm not going to put you out of my heart." And that means something. That's opening a gate that's been closed for too damn long. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I spent. Uh, about four years in prison and two years in exile, and uh, I have uh, papers, you know, uh, freedom of information stuff on what the government was doing. They were really following all of us around. They were really doing rather uh, dirty tricks to us uh, during that period. And uh, yet, uh, I am always prepared when I meet a, a guard or a prison official or uh, an ex-sheriff or anyone from the past. The first time I meet them and they walk in and I look in their eyes, yeah. I'm ready to start right over again. Great. Beautiful. Uh, as an Beautiful. example of that, I spend quite a bit of time these days debating with my absolute worst enemy, yeah. G. Gordon Liddy. Uh, and uh, I find this extremely interesting that uh, I'm wearing him down. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I'm mellowing that mother out. 
And, uh, man is gut small, I'll tell you. It's he sometimes complains both privately and even publicly that if this goes on, but you're not actually he's going to be out of a job because his job is being a bad guy. <laughs> I understand. But you see, the thing, the way you're not opponents is you both work for the same lecture agent. See, you're, you're, you're collaborating to compete. And you're both conscious at both levels. So you're good sports in that sense. Because if he was just busy being the bad guy, he wouldn't play with you. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. Okay, yeah. go ahead. And to support your uh, position, which is a very r radical love position, <laughs> tossing love bombs loves, in, yes. in public, uh, I've had uh, see, three interesting experiences just this week. Yeah. One is to At come least. to Harvard... And to have David McClellan, who fired us, lovingly reintroduce us. <laughs> then last week, uh, the publicist from my book said, uh, listen, it would be wonderful if we could get a review of your book from the Prison Wardens magazine. And I said, is there such a thing? <laughs> so I called Sacramento State Capitol and said, Where's Ray Procunier now, who is the director of corrections for the state of California? He uh, ran 20 prisons, 18 of which I was fortunate enough to um, <laughs> inhabit. And, uh, I finally tracked him down. He's now the uh, commissioner of corrections for the state of Virginia. So I called him. We got on the phone. He said, um, Timmy, my boy. <laughs> uh, What's the matter? Are you, in, are you in trouble again? You need some help? <laughs> You're the favorite prisoner that ever escaped from my prison. I said, well, look, Ray, I, I need a blurb for my book. <laughs> and uh, then, day after tomorrow, I'm going to be debating G. Gordon Liddy, who started his career by walking into my bedroom on a April midnight and busting me and my wife for the possession of peat moss. Um, so, uh, <laughs> these reunions uh, of uh, people that used to be on other sides of teams, uh, I think is, a, is, a, is a, something that's happening right now. Mm. Not, not just in my life or in your life, but I think... Uh, we all are getting that feeling that it's time to uh, to get it together and move on. Hear that. In the Hellenistic period, the Logos was an informing voice, and all the great thinkers of, of Hellenistic times, Plato, Socrates, Xenophon, Thucydides, uh, all of these people were in contact with the Logos. It was the sine qua non of Hellenistic religion. And it was a speaking and informing voice that tells you the right way to live. Well, we don't know what to make of this. Uh, and at a certain point in the evolution of the Western mind, judging by uh, the writings of people who were contemporaneous with those times, the Logos fell silent. There was actually a date. Uh, some of you may know the story of the fishermen pulling their nets off the Isle of Rhodes, uh, and they heard a voice from the sky say that Great Pan is dead. 
And this was at the change of the eon, the beginning of the age of Aquarius. Uh, it was almost as though there was something in the ancient world that has gone latent, that we can no longer touch or imagine. Um, Gordon Wasson, who discovered with his wife Valentina the mushrooms, told a very interesting story um, in one of his books about how in Mazatecan, uh, the people who are speakers of Mazatecan, when they chant what the mushroom says, uh, they have created a special form for this, which goes like this. Zabuz, 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 tseh. This word tseh means says. Zabuz, 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 says. Says. I didn't know this at the time I took mushrooms the second time. And in my head, I heard the mushroom speaking in English but adding the word says to the end of the sentence. So it was almost like, you know, this thing could speak in Mazatec, it could speak in English, but it always kept its cadence and its structure. Um, the other thing about psilocybin and the DMT thing is that it, it not only is something not real unless it can be said, but the the... Count, the contrapositive of that is that once something can be said, it becomes almost too real. It displaces other possibilities. I mean, so we're living in a set of constructs, some architectural, some ideological, and uh, they can be very oppressive. I mean, how do you get rid of the notion of linear time and space uh, very easily? It's It's the slow work of consensus. One of the things that I feel I'm doing very consciously in these kinds of meetings is we're trying to launch and replicate memes. You, you all know this concept? A meme is the smallest unit of an idea in the same way that a gene is the smallest unit of organism. And so these things, DMT elves, transcendental object at the end of history, so far, these are memes. And uh, in the same way that genes are copied and spread around and that fidelity of copying is the key to genetic success, fidelity of, of meme replication is the key to communication. I mean, if I give a speech on something and then you hear it and then you go out and somebody says, so what did he say? and you give a completely cockeyed account of what has been said, well, then the meme has been betrayed. But if you can actually transfer the meme to somebody else's mind, and then they can copy it and pass it on, then the meme, uh, it's almost as though the ideological environment were like a rainforest. Uh, or a coral reef. Evolution is taking place. Stupid memes dumb memes have short lifetimes and they disappear, you know, uh, and m memes of great power are able to thrive in many intellectual and ideological niches and to make many uh, marriages of convenience with other memes and so they are stabilized and passed along. Somehow we have to become hip 
to the fact, to the power of language. And instead of just willy-nilly creating linguistic structures uh, sort of ad hoc, we need to begin to consciously engineer our uh, linguistic intent. And then, you know, so far in the 20th century, this has not been a program with a very happy history because only jerks have gotten a hold of it. Nazis and people with narrow social programs. They say, you know, we're not going to call each other Mr. and Mrs. or hey you. We're going to call, everybody's going to call each other comrade. And then this will create the notion of comradeship, which to a certain degree it does. But, you know, manipulating these things for political ends, I mean, the, you know, the Jews, it was okay to put Jews in ovens because the official language for talking about Jews was that they were untermensch, subhuman, not like us, whoever we are. So once the definition had been changed, people said, well, it's okay to mistreat Jews. You know, they're not even really people. And this is this kind of thinking goes on all the time. It's called stereotyping. And it always is an easier substitute. It's a, it's a cheap substitute for clear thinking. David Brown asked me the question, what about life after death? And I, it was somewhat of a sidebar. Uh, the Buddhists at the folk level in India do say you cannot attain enlightenment unless your mother is dead, which is a kind of an odd notion, seeming to imply that she had to precede you into hyperspace. When you die, what you do is... You literally, as appears to happen, you dissolve. And where you go is uh, forward and backward into time, not like a gas released into time, but along the tracks and trails of the genetic machinery. In other words, you flow into your children, and you, you become, let, well, let's make a very simple model and say at the moment of death, you become your children and your parents. A few moments later, you become your grandchildren and your grandparents. You're spreading down. It's almost as though the, the thing which you were, which was this focus of ego and individuality, then it dies. And it's almost as though the mountain begins to slump back into the generalized pool of consciousness and being. That's why I have somewhat less patience maybe than I should have with the idea of, of channeling and, and uh, come-as-you-were parties and that sort of thing. Because it seems to me the key to understanding the idea of reincarnation and past lives is that you were everybody. Of course, that's who you are. Here comes everybody. You know, you weren't just that shepherd girl or that Roman Empire emperor or that Greek fellow. You're everybody. And you can find your way into the great genetic telephone system and ring anybody's bell in history. Well, then it would be absurd to claim you were that person. That would be as absurd as claiming that anybody you could call on the telephone is who you are. No, it's that we are everyone. And, you know, the great 
turning object in hyperspace that is the genetic, I don't know, uh, transdimensional object casts off glinting reflections of this personality, that personality. And astrology has a role to play here and other things. But the bottom line is uh, we are all drawn of the same stuff. I think one of the most profound insights you can have on psychedelics, and I certainly have it, is that uh, we are all interchangeable. You know, anybody could do my job, and I'm pretty confident I could do almost anybody's job. We define ourselves otherwise, but, uh, you know, in watching, the, in watching the rise of my own career, it's just, it's a kind of being deputized chosen for the job. It's just they said, well, him, he can do it. He has the gift of gab, so give him the credit line. But it could have been anybody. Our uniqueness is, uh, is real on one level, but on another level, it's fairly illusory. Uh, it's, it's sort of a coincidencia positorum. You have to hold these two antithetical things in your mind at once in order to correctly perceive uh, the proper level of ambiguity that's resident in reality. It ain't simple, folks. Well, I don't think we have to go back as far as the worm-like stage. I think what we have to do is uh, we have to get out of history. History is a con game run by frightened men and their obedient stooges. Uh, what We had a moment of happiness. There was a moment of completion. I guess I should explain my position on this. You see, there have always been dominance hierarchies in primates. As far back as you go, clear back to squirrel monkeys, there are what are called male dominance hierarchies. Well, so then uh, in us, this is, uh, has, was interrupted by psilocybin use over a period of probably a couple of hundred thousand years. The psilocybin, forget that it's psychedelic for a moment, just think of it as an inoculation against ego. And so for 200,000 years or so, it was a dietary item which suppressed this normal monkey behavior. And, and so then females were shared. The sexual style was orgiastic. Uh, there were no awareness of lines of male paternity, and the children belonged to the group. This was not, quote-unquote, natural. The natural way is for the men to dominate, to control the females, to the old tooth and claw. But for a couple of hundred thousand years, it was artificially interrupted by the presence of mushroom in the Paleolithic human diet. Well, then when, because of climatological factors and other factors that we can discuss in another meeting, the mushroom became unavailable, the old monkey behaviors reemerged only about 12,000 years ago. But in the previous 200,000 years, language had been discovered, fire, tool making, song, a whole bunch of uh, forward leaps 
had been made. Well, then when the psilocybin was withdrawn and the patterns of male dominance reasserted themselves in an environment where fire and language had been achieved, it exacerbated it. It made it much more nightmarish. It made it much more difficult to step away from. And all of history is the unhappy story of our, essentially our withdrawal and our agony over being unable to reach this connection back into the Gaian mind, which when we had it, we lived in Eden. We were balanced. Uh, but, but it faded and history was the consequence. Now in the last 50 years, information has arrived on our plate lo and behold, in the final ticking of the final hour of our dilemma that actually shows us the way back if we but have the wisdom to understand this and then the fortitude to apply what we know. You mean motivation to take psychedelics? To take action. To take action. Well, I think, you know, that the, the psychedelic community has not yet recognized or named itself as a community. We're well behind uh, gays and black people and all these other... My, we're still trying to figure out if we are a community. And if we are a community and we have a domain of action... I think where it lies, it's not that we're all supposed to become dope dealers, it's that we're all supposed to become artists, that the transformation of culture through art is the proper understanding of uh, what you can do with psychedelics besides blow your own mind. And I really think, you know, what we need to do is put the art pedal to the floor and understand that this is art. We are involved in some kind of enormous piece of performance art called Western civilization. And, you know, it's been a, a C-minus performance so far, and they're just about to reach out with the hook and drag us off stage unless we begin pulling rabbits out of the hat pretty furiously. Art is poised for this, but art is ambivalent because the society is ambivalent. That's why meetings like this, where you actually hear it said, the sooner the better. The clock is ticking. This is not a test. There will not be a retry. You know, this is the window of opportunity between the unknown and eternity. If not taken, then the entire enterprise could be lost. The whole thing, from the cave paintings at Lascaux to Whitney Houston, it could all go down the drain if we don't, uh, you know, act to preserve it through an act of uh, human cognition plus courage. To the future without fear. Without fear. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. To the future without fear. Without fear. Which is, of course, uh, much easier said than done. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to have to leave my comments about fear for another day because uh, I have something else on my mind right now. It's something that I've been thinking quite a lot about for these past several months. Uh, so let me set the scene. There's a documentary film titled War Dance that I rented from Netflix a while back. 
It's set in Civil War-ravaged northern Uganda and uh, focuses on three young people in a refugee camp. I would try to describe their lives for you now, but uh, whenever I think about them, I'm brought to the verge of tears, and not because of their, uh, at least to me, almost unbearable situations, but because of the incredible courage and force of will that these young people exhibited. What essentially has given them a small semblance of a decent few moments on this earth is music. And in the documentary, we see them overcome difficulties that for sure would have stopped me in my tracks, and yet they made it to the top level of competition in their national music festival. This is a documentary that I wish everybody could see, and while I was watching it, uh, almost in parallel in my mind, I was also watching the people dance at the recent Oracle and Symbiosis gatherings. I can't quite put it into words right now, but the overarching importance of music and dance in the lives of us humans, I think, uh, cannot be overemphasized. There's something beyond even magic that takes place in us when we're enveloped in the music and dancing without another thought in our minds, just ecstatically dancing and being the music. As you can tell, I have very strong feelings about the worldwide dance community. And if you haven't already found a way to participate in person in a gathering or a rave or whatever you want to call it, at least once every year or so, then I highly recommend that you start looking around to find one that you can get to. Hell, move to the coast if you have to, but no matter what your age, I think you owe it to yourself to at least give it a try. Check it out. The dance scene is where you'll find the energy, the love, and the vibe of the 60s, but pumped up big time on steroids. And this idea of a static dance isn't something new, by the way. I first learned about it when I read Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, which he wrote in 1934. And uh, that is the tone I wanted to set in the Genesis generation by beginning the story with this quote from Miller's Tropic of Cancer. He said, I believe that today, more than ever, a book should be sought after even if it has only one great page in it. We must search for fragments, splinters, toenails, anything that has ore in it anything that is capable of resuscitating the body and soul. It may be that we are doomed, that there is no hope for us, any of us. But if that is so, let us set up a last agonizing, blood-curling howl, a screech of defiance, a war whoop, away with lamentation, away with eulogies and dirges, away with biographies and histories and libraries and museums. Let the dead eat the dead. Let us living ones dance about the rim of the crater, a last expiring dance, but a dance. Now, it's my personal opinion that every heartbeat and every breath and every step on a dance floor pumps some very much-needed love into the human holon, into the newosphere. Right now, somewhere on this planet we all share, there are people dancing. And to me, they are dancing to keep our human spirit alive. They're dancing for you and me. In my last podcast, uh, I mentioned how great it was to have been in San Francisco in 1967 and 68. And commenting on that, uh, one of our fellow slawners wrote and said, or maybe it was posted as a comment on our notes from the Psychedelic Slon blog, but she or he said, In 1968, I was still liquid. Hmm, how I wish I had lived there just for a few months, feeling all the flower power of the music, the medicines together with thousands of friends. Well, guess what? If we play our roles the way we know we should, 
the next 10 years are going to make the 60s look like the 50s. As Terence just said, we must all become artists now and turn our lives into works of great performance art because the clock is ticking. This is not a test. There will not be a retry. This is the window of opportunity between the unknown and eternity. If not taken, then the entire enterprise could be lost. Those are strong words, my friend. And while we may, from time to time, want to throw in the towel and let future generations take up the cause, you know as well as I do that you and I came here at this particular and intense moment in time for a very specific reason. Maybe a reason that we still haven't quite figured out yet. But the fact that you and I are here together right now in cyberspace tells me that we're on to something. The signs are all pointing to some difficult times that may lie before us, so be sure to rest up a little. Stop watching the news for a while. Build yourself up for the long haul, and remember, fatigue can make cowards of us all. So be sure to set aside some time each day to play, to sing, and to dance, even if only for a few minutes. It will for sure help you make it through the great jump, and that may be here and gone before we know it. And then the real fun is going to begin. In his latest podcast, Queer Ninja played a song that really caught me. It's called Rainbow Veins, and I must have played it a dozen or more times now, mainly to hear the line that goes, "'Cause your heart has a lack of color, and we should have known that we'd grow up sooner or later because we wasted all our free time alone.'" Well, I don't know about you, but I'm still not ready to grow up yet. At least if it means uh, being like these sad sacks I see driving to work each day. Aldous Huxley once said, A childlike man is not a man whose development has been arrested. On the contrary, he is a man who has given himself a chance of continuing to develop long after most adults have muffled themselves in the cocoon of middle-aged habit and convention. So let's hear it for us childlike women and men. And please notice that I said childlike, not childish. If you want to be a child of the 60s, well, be one. It isn't about the decade you live in, it's about your state of mind. I sometimes tell people that I'm a flower child who slept through the 60s. Well, guess what? I'm wide awake now, and as far as I'm concerned, the 60s are here and now. Of course, uh, <laughs> the fact that I'm also now in my 68th year may have uh, something to do with that feeling. As the good Dr. Leary just said, uh, sometimes these words are slippery concepts. So, after all that, why is it, you ask, that I feel we are better off today than we were in the 1960s? Well, for one thing, you and I are together here in cyberspace right now. Back in the 60s, the word cyberspace didn't even exist. So we have the net, and uh, that is a very big thing. But even more importantly, uh, we have you. We have our fellow saloners. And we have the tribe, which is uh, what I call the worldwide psychedelic community that has now spread into every little nook and cranny on the planet. We are everywhere, and uh, one day I have a hunch that we'll be the mainstream. Of course, uh, that's probably the worst thing that can happen to us, <laughs> at least until we steer the culture in a new direction. Throughout the past few years, as my wife and I have traveled to various conferences, workshops, and festivals, We've met a wonderful variety of highly intelligent, creative, and beautiful people, both inside and out, most of whom are half our ages or less. It may be hard to believe if you weren't there back then, but even in San Francisco there probably weren't more than a handful of truly aware, enlightened people. 
and I certainly wasn't one of them. Back then, I knew of nobody who could even come close to the levels of intelligence and sophistication that is found among today's average young member of the global dance community. We weren't even close back then to the leading-edge thinking that's going on among young people today. I realize that it's sometimes dicey being a young person today because uh, it's so easy to look at the shitty condition of the world and give up all hope. And I can certainly understand that feeling because uh, I too have given up all hope on our current institutions, everything from governments to churches, uh, being able to come up with solutions that will make human existence better. But when I go to Burning Man or to an oracle or symbiosis gathering, my spirit is renewed because of the incredible people I meet there. Some meetings are only fleeting. I can still remember the face of a tall man who came up to me after my talk last month, introduced himself as a fellow saloner, and told me that he had also listened to the Genesis generation. Well, I didn't have any time to visit with him just then, and we never had a chance to reconnect. But I can still see his eyes, and I remember his face. That may not seem like much, but to a fellow psychonaut, just making eye contact is enough to exchange a lifetime of information. We psychonauts do know what we know. We have been to the edge and returned to join together in ways we can't yet imagine. But we are most definitely on a path with heart. So take heart, gather up your courage, and let's press on with the great work that we've all taken it upon ourselves to do. Well, I guess that little bit of melodrama should do it for today. And uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you are interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation which is available as an audio book that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. What is happening here is not the death of a species or the death of a planetary ecosystem. What is happening here is the birth of a new cosmic order. All that we can see of it at this point in time is the rosy glow of its promise. Where we really want to be is naked, singing in the rainforest, stoned and exalted, one with the souls of the ancestors, one with the Gaian spirit of the planet.